Hi there. Welcome to season two of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Alexandra Bassent. Alexandra is a video producer who lives with her family and two dogs in Baltimore. She likes to spend time in the kitchen coming up with new dinner ideas, but someone else will have to make dessert. She also likes to paint and is frequently in search of a creative outlet. Alexandra has been cancer-free for two years. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. So let's begin with you telling everyone, what were you diagnosed with and how old were you? I was 42 years old and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. All right. And what kind of breast cancer were you diagnosed with? I am triple positive. So that's estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 positive, which, you know, when you're first diagnosed with breast cancer, you think basically breast cancer is breast cancer, but there's lots of different varieties. So triple positive, basically learned quickly that it would mean a year of infusions. And that's kind of a differentiating factor because I would get Herceptin and Progetta as part of my regimen. And people mm-hmm. would say, you know, HER2 positive, a couple of years, like 10 years ago, that was the worst kind of cancer you could have for breast cancer. But then oh. with Herceptin coming on board, it was the good kind of cancer now to have because there was this good therapy. Wow. If that's not proof of progress. I don't know what is like the worst cancer becomes the best. Well, cancer. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, that's what people would, I don't know if it really was the worst, um, but they were saying, you know, it wasn't as beneficial to have that one a while ago, but now you're so much better off being able to get mm. Herceptin and Progetta as part of your treatment. And so it was triple positive, HER2 positive? Yeah, that's part of it. That's one okay. of the three of the triple. So it's estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. Okay. The trifecta, it sounds like. Sure. My husband, my husband joked. He was like, why in the world did you get triple positive? It makes you sound like you're a uh, you know, really positive person. <laughs> so what were the signs? How, what led you to find out you had a cancer, that you had breast cancer? I found a lump, and mm-hmm. I had an annual appointment with my GYN, coming up. So I just figured, nah, I'll see what she says when I go in. And she said during my appointment, she said, I think that you should have this looked at. And so I walked out of her office and got in my car and I called the radiology office and I was two blocks down the road. And I said, you know, can you see me now? And they said, sure, come in now. I went to the radiology office and I went in and I had a mammogram, and then they gave me an ultrasound right there, and they said I needed to speak to the radiologist. Hmm. And so the radiologist came in and said, uh, you need a biopsy. And I said, okay. They said across the hall was the breast surgeon, and it turns out that he is a breast surgeon who is a good friend of his daughter is a good friend of mine. So I've actually known him since I was about seven years old. Oh, and the, wow. the, yeah, it just kind of lined up. The radiologist says to me, 
you know, the doctor across the hall is going to Asia tomorrow for two weeks. And I was like, okay. And you're saying I need a biopsy from him. Uh, I'd like a biopsy from him because I know him. Can you take my chart across the hall, show him my name and say, can you see me right now? <laughs> and so he did see me right then and there. And so his bags were packed to go to Asia, but he quickly got me into a room, gave me a biopsy. And, you know, obviously I didn't have confirmation right then and there that I had cancer, but I knew when I walked out of that office that I had cancer. So I came home and it was like my world had changed quite a bit. And I would need, you know, a couple days for them to get back to me with more information about what kind of cancer specifically it was, you know, what the treatment would be. Also, this was coinciding with spring break. And so this was, I think, a Thursday when all of this was happening. And on Saturday, I was going to Mexico with my family and another family for a week. Oh, my. And so I said to the doctor that my spring break is coming up. What should I be doing? And he said, go on spring break. <laughs> like, go, go do it. So... I was like, okay, going, but you know, there's so many emotions that are going through your mind at that exact moment when you have a new diagnosis and there's so much unknown and I, you know, do I need to start therapy immediately? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? But he said, go pack your bags. And so we went on spring break and, uh, Obviously, my husband knew. I told the other parents of the family that was going with us, but none of the children knew. Mm. And I have two boys, and they were uh, 10 and 12. And they did not need to know at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so we went on spring break, and we came back from spring break. And I had a doctor's appointment, I think a day or two days later, and it actually was a snowstorm day. And so school was closed and my kids were home and my husband and I went to the doctor's appointment and I think my children were a little mystified as to why their father and I were going out in this bad weather and going to a doctor's appointment, but we went and that's when sort of everything was laid out that I would be starting chemotherapy pretty immediately. And then I would do six chemos. And then I would uh, wait a little bit and then have surgery probably. And then we'd see what would come after that, whether it would be radiation included. And that because I was HER2 positive, I would have Herceptin and Progetta, and the regiment was for a full year of that. So basically infusions every three weeks for a year. And then I we came home. We drove carefully home because it was awful weather that day. And then decided that that was the time when I needed to tell my boys that this was the diagnosis. And sat at the table, told them, and then my 12-year-old says to me, are you going to die? Yeah. Yeah. How did so, you respond? I think what I said at that point was, we're all going to die at some point. I don't plan on dying now. <laughs> How did he respond? Uh, I just, I think he, I just remember this like dumbfounded look on his face. 
he didn't cry. He didn't carry on, but just this like look of total shock. Yeah. And he wasn't, yeah, he, and he was the older one. And so I was less worried about him, actually. I was more worried about my younger son because he had already had two classmates' parents die from cancer. So oh I thought my. he was going to be the one who reacted so negatively, but he was more even keel. Interesting. Yeah, because he having two friends who lost parents to cancer. Right. Would, in his yeah. small class. Yeah. Yeah. There would, he might imagine a certain future. Yes. You know, and, but it was your 12 year old. Yeah. And when you said your 12 year old, I don't plan on dying that like kind of communicated, like it's the intention to stay alive. And like, we don't know, but right. I remember that conversation with my stepson. I think he was, well, I think he was like, nine yeah and he said he asked if I could die from it and I said well I can and you know I've got great doctors and you know we're gonna take care of this and he said okay you know and uh we would be playful and make jokes about it and he did as well you know and that kind of let him know it's like you know I felt like my modeling for him was gonna communicate to him what I was going through you know and and, and what, what what he could count on and that, that varied from time to time, you know. Right. But I think when you have children and you sort of have to put on this happy face sometimes and just, you know, go on with your day, go on with your diagnosis and make them think that nothing's impacting you and that this is just, you know, a blip in the life and it mm. will be fine. And so that was, I mean, I still needed to make them dinner. I still needed to take them to school. I still needed to go to work. And so all of that was business as usual. And you were able to make them dinner and work and do the treatments? Yeah, pretty much. I would typically have my treatments on Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday. And then it was probably Friday or Saturday that I sort of fell apart for a little bit. But I could rally throughout the day. And that's what I chose to do oh that's fantastic i couldn't for me the chemo was uh it just laid me out my and man my doc had said look you're young and healthy i'm going to uh what how did he put it he said i'm gonna hit you hard bring it to the brink of death and then we're gonna you know kill this cancer but keep you alive and i said okay <laughs> and boy they hit me hard they do hit you hard, yeah. I mean, chemo is no joke, and it is tough, and it's pretty awful. It is. It really takes something, and it really shows the resilience of human beings because it's unreal what we go through navigating chemotherapy and uh, finding our way through because there were times for certain for me, and I'm curious about you, where there were times I was just like, I have how many more of these treatments? Like, <laughs> how am I going to do this? Yeah. Where's the no, strength going to come from? Right. And then, I don't know if you had a port of sorts mm -hmm. or... So I actually thought the port placement was awful. <laughs> and so oh, really? got the port and I looked like I had been in a car crash because I was completely bruised on my chest. And I found it so hard to sleep and it just was so uncomfortable. And I felt like that was so like invasive to have that in there. And I think it took almost like three months for me to get used to having the port. Um, I did grow to appreciate the port and the fact that when it, I went to the infusion center every three weeks, 
it was easy to infuse me that way. Um, but I found that that was really difficult to get accustomed to. And then chemo was just really, really hard. And there was one time, too, where I got a urinary tract infection. Mm. And I ended up septic because the chemo had knocked my immune system so badly that my body couldn't fight the UTI. And I didn't really realize I had a UTI. And next thing I know, I have a fever and I've got rigors where my teeth are chattering and oh I'm, being, I'm being admitted to the hospital and I spent four days in the hospital because I was septic. Wowie. And what exactly does septic mean? An abundance of toxins in the yeah, body? Yeah, and that my body couldn't fight and get rid of. And so I just needed to oh. make sure that I was getting the right antibiotic to get rid of what was happening to me. I mean, people die from sepsis. Um, mm -hmm. So that was frightening. And then I was glad that I had the port at that point because I had to give myself um, IV antibiotics every day for two and a half weeks. And so I could give yeah. that to myself and not have to go to the hospital to do that. And you spent three days, you said, in the hospital? I, I think I spent four days in the hospital. Four yeah. days. And how was that? Um, that wasn't very fun. That was the first time I'd ever really spent any time at the hospital. Yeah. One fun. <laughs> I, I, I can never forget, you know, being in the hospital. I've been in the hospital uh, three times for surgery. And uh, the nurses coming in like every four hours and checking my vitals. And I'd be like, are you seriously waking me up again? Yeah. I'm supposed to be resting, right? I'm supposed to be getting sleep, right? And, you know, I was just thinking to myself, like, have they not upgraded the system so they don't have to wake you up every four hours? Like, that's crazy. And uh, one time the docs came in and started speaking to me early in the morning. And there was a few of them talking. And I had a roommate. And I said, pardon me. And they looked at me. I said, my roommate over here, I said, he's, he's sleeping. Could you keep it down a little bit? And they kind of took them a moment. And they said, okay. Because I, I find that there's, you know, there's often this authority that is literally provided by us two doctors and I, I got the sense they were not accustomed to you know receiving that kind of request which is why when I coach people I advise them to ask their doctor if they can call them by their first name because it helps the mind adjust and take the doctor out of a position of authority and put the doctor in a position of partnership because really you make the decisions and you decide they just provide you their wisdom, their training, and their experience, but it's our bodies, right? And we get to say. Well, yeah, and, uh, I think that's a pretty fascinating point that you bring up because I have said to several people, uh, if you don't trust your healthcare team and you don't feel comfortable talking to them, run, go in a different direction, go find somebody else. Because yeah. I think you have to have faith in the people that are taking care of you in order for you to be able to heal. I could not agree with you more. When I had a second opinion, the doctor I went to worked at a cancer hospital. He worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and he, you know, he did these surgeries all the time, all, you know, every day. Mm -hmm. uh, the general surgeon I went to, you know, he did far fewer in a year uh, at a uh, smaller hospital in Sarah, Pennsylvania. But I ended up going with the doc who was in the smaller hospital because his bedside manner was wonderful, and um, I was actually a uh, felt humiliated 
by the doctor that I saw at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, he had a team of students in there with him when he was giving me this uh, sigmoidoscopy where they put a short scope up into the rectum and look around. And he'd ask me a question or ask me to do something and I would do it or answer the question. And then he'd ask a different question and I'd start to answer it and I'd hear one of his students answer and I realized he wasn't speaking to me. And this happened more than once and I felt embarrassed that I had answered a question when I wasn't being addressed. You know, it's like when someone smiles across the room at you and you smile and you hear, you realize yeah, they're looking at the person you. next to yeah. you and you don't know them. Right. And I also felt shame while I had this, you know, I'm in a room full of people and there's a scope in my behind and I'm already dealing with the shame I feel from that. And then I'm embarrassed because he's, because I thought he was speaking to me and, and then he didn't acknowledge it. And then he tried to rush us through the appointment and one of his students told us that he had dinner plans with his wife and it was Friday and he wanted to get out. And he was clearly far more uh, practiced at the procedure and I did not go to him because, I'm, no. The doc I went to in the smaller hospital, he was fantastic. He made me feel comfortable. He, I laughed with him. He was just warm and kind and considerate. And for me, that's a huge factor. you know. And like you said, for each one of us, it really has to do with what, who's a match for us? You know, I'm sure there are folks who they don't want the warm, touchy-feely doc. Right. They want the doc who's going to just be a machine about it. But they're going to have confidence in that. So, yeah, you just have to trust yourself. And, yeah. There you go. And it's, and it's so important. I love that you tell people that. I'm curious, the biopsy, what is the biopsy like? Because I've had biopsy in my liver I've never had a breast cancer biopsy. If I remember correctly, it was a, I think there was a numbing shot first, and then it was just a needle directly into the breast, and they go in and they take a portion, and they also, I believe, leave behind a little coil of some sort so they know exactly where the spot was. Okay, and they do like an ultrasound while they do it so they can... Yes, so they can see it precision. all. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I just thought any folks who are listening might be curious, you know, if they have, if they have a biopsy coming up, they might wonder like, okay, so what is that? So they just... Yeah, I don't think it was not... I'm, I'm trying to remember correctly, but it wasn't anything that was painful or frightening. It was relatively easy, not like a liver biopsy. Yeah, well, with the liver biopsy, what they did is they... They numbed the area, and then they had to poke it between the ribs into the liver. And they acknowledged, they said, it's going to be uncomfortable. And it was, but it wasn't. What was really most uncomfortable was I'd never felt any kind of discomfort like that. Mm -hmm. So it was just, it's a foreign discomfort, and you're feeling it in a place where you wouldn't normally feel it. Yeah, so... They're all very interesting. I was going to research, you know, the different kinds of cancers that people get, and I'm learning, like, there's, I, I would spend the rest of my life doing that. Just, I'm just going to ask lots of questions. Right, I <laughs> think, yeah. And I mean, I, I think even having gone through cancer, sometimes you don't always know all the answers. Uh, when I first got diagnosed, I called a friend who had breast cancer, and she was somebody I knew in high school, but I hadn't talked to her lately, and she said to me, you know, for women... It's kind of like childbirth. 
you, t- you like to talk to somebody about the experience, but everybody's experience is completely different and nobody's mm-hmm. is going to be the same. But you take a little bit of solace in knowing that somebody else has gone this path before you and that, you know, you they share their experience, you share your experience, and it's just, but everybody's going to be different. Yeah, it is going to be different and it helps. Which is why we're here. That's why this podcast exists, so we can just provide that to people. Uh, you brought up a great point, though. You know, getting used to the port, and I'd forgotten about that. It's been a long time since I've had a port in, and I'd forgotten the first time I got the port and just, you know, going around the house, getting dressed, raising my arm, taking a shower, and there's this foreign object sitting in my chest. And you see the little wire running over the clavicle, the little tube. I mean, yeah, it's it's just so odd to have objects in our body that we don't have access to, and you can feel there they get in the way of your day. And you see it, and then when you lose your hair, and so when you get in the shower and you pass the mirror and you see your port and you see that you're bald, you're like. Who the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, say more about that. Yeah, so losing, I had really long hair, and the nurse navigator was telling me that I think it was, she said I would start to lose it and that, you know, it would be on my pillow every day when I woke up. So then I decided that I, I couldn't live like that. So I actually shaved my head after my first chemo, I think closer towards my second. Um, chemo, which was really unnerving to shave the head. Um, and then, you know, I had a little bit of bristle at that point. You could see that I had dark hair. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, there was nothing there. And then you don't realize that you lose your eyelashes and you lose your eyebrows and everything is gone. And it's really annoying not to have eyelashes either. There's a lot of junk that gets in your eyes when you don't have any eyelashes. Um, and it's just, you. there's nothing normal about being a woman and not having hair. That's something I observed from a different perspective. When my hair kept falling out, I'd be sitting at my laptop, you know, and scratch my head and, or watch TV and scratch my head and see hair in my hands. So I, like you, I said, no, I'm not doing this. The boys were like at that point, you know, like uh, 10 and maybe one and a half or something. And I told the older guy I was going to do it. And he's like, okay. But I sat the toddler down in front of me with his mom and then shaved it off. Because, you know, I didn't want to like walk out of the bathroom. All of a sudden he just is startled. Like what happened to Papa? So I shaved it all off and then I would just bick it every day. And I had fun, you know, you know, putting shaving cream on my head and shaving it. I went online and learned the best ways to do it. <laughs> but I didn't lose my eyebrows or my lashes and I didn't, I had a goatee at the time. I didn't lose that either. Okay. So I, I was just a bald guy with a goatee and eyebrows. It's just, you know, everyone who knew me knew why Bert was bald, but out in the world, it didn't mean anything to anybody. And as a woman, like, you know, or may I say as a man, being bald doesn't really uh, doesn't 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 affect how you are perceived in society. But for a woman, if you'd have no hair, no eyebrows, no lashes, I mean, it it affects the perception. Yes, it does. And you know, I didn't 
I wore a wig for a period of time and I got tired of wearing a wig and then I would wear, you know, bandanas or kind of headscarves. And even wearing that, I had this game that I would play about which uh, grocery store was the least judgmental that I would go to. Because, you know, people look at you strangely sometimes. And so there were grocery stores that I had on the top of the list that I was like, I'm not going there anymore. Uh, Trader Joe's was, of course, the best. I was like, because nobody ever looked at you strangely there. They were like, okay, whatever. Um, So, you know, I learned to live with it. When I came home after shaving my head, I did have my boys participate with me in creating a video of myself singing Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You and shot my own little video because I felt like that's what I looked like at that point, Sinead O'Connor. And then it got worse when I had no hair. And then when the hair started growing back, I just was like, okay, it is what it is. People know that I've had cancer and I just can't deal with it anymore. So I have about half an inch of hair on my head and that's what I'm going to run with. I love that you had fun with your kids with it. Yeah, I tried because, you know, and I was always so afraid too that, I, you know, the UPS guy would come to the door and I'd answer the door and I'd be all bald and crazy looking, but it was all right. (laughs) No, it's, I mean, you know, creating playfulness is so valuable because there are times we're just like, this is so absurd. Right. Like, what is going on? Like, I, I have no hair on my entire head. Right. I mean, I don't know that experience, but just hearing from you, like, yeah. And I the my own things that I would do from the absurdity, you know, certain side effects, like from the radiation, they were so absurd. I would just start laughing like, this is crazy that I'm even having this. And yeah, people looking at you, some folks really give themselves permission or don't give it any thought and will just look at you like not trying to hide it at all, just staring at you. And it's, uh, I, yeah, it's like, why be around that if you can find somewhere else to be? It's, yeah, it's interesting to navigate. Yeah. Cancer shows you things. It shows you sides of people that you may not uh, have otherwise seen. Yeah. I mean, you know who are your true friends and you know who supports you and you learn to appreciate your family even more. Yeah. I was surprised by some of the folks who showed up, like folks in that were kind of like, like there's my immediate circle of fan, friends and then there are folks who are on the periphery. Right. And that were only friends because of the friends we have. And like some of those folks showed up big time. Big time. I agree. I mean, I can think of one woman who her son is in my son's class and she sent me all this ice cream and it was just like the nicest thing that I would come home from a chemo and there would be this ice cream that I could have. And it was just so kind of her and she didn't have to do that. And so, yeah, yeah, I agree that some people just really do show up and it was fascinating to see. Yeah. And then there are folks who you think are going to show up and they just don't have the capacity to. No, they don't. And at first, yeah, at first I was a little disappointed and then I kind of let it go. I was like, you know, people don't know how to react sometimes and sometimes no reaction is how they can get through it. And so you just had to let them do that. Yeah, I reacted horribly to the first close friend who had cancer. You did? I was just, oh. oh, I did. Yeah, I did it you know, before I got diagnosed. She got cancer and, you know, we'd become close. We were both in the same program. She was my coach, actually. And, uh. 
she was diagnosed and I just, when she finally had to leave the program, she stopped hearing from me. And uh, she called me and said, you know, Bert, where have you been? Like, I need my friends. And I burst into tears. I'm like, Mary, I thought you were going to die. And I freaked out and I just Aww. didn't know what to do. She's like, well, I'm not dead. You want to come over? I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Went over a few days later and hugged her and talked. And, you know, it was so powerful for me to have that experience because years later, who would know? I would get diagnosed and friends didn't show up. And I kept a blog because it was just too much information to keep telling people over the phone, I guess. And why send an email? I just, you know, blogs were arising back then. This was in 2007. And so uh, I created one and I was then able to tell folks, hey, if you haven't come around, like, I want you to know this is my story. And I told them about my reaction to Mary and how I backed away. And uh, I want you to know that I get it. Like, this is hard. And, you know, please know that I love you regardless. You know, if you're not able to come around, like, I'm not taking that personally. It's, uh, you know, it, life is hard. And, you know, some folks ended up showing up actually and <laughs> reaching out to me shortly after that post. And uh, others didn't. But, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's scary stuff. And when you, when you have no experience with it or, like, you know, when you have a history of it and it hasn't gone well with people in your life, People, you know, come from fear. They're like, oh, no, like not another one. Right. I agree. And I did, you know, I think that was one of the things I learned from having cancer was that you, you should show up for people. Like you should, if somebody's going through something, sending them a quick email, sending them a text, sending them a postcard, it speaks volumes. And I've tried to tell my children that too. Like if somebody is hurting or something's not right, like just the tiniest little notion of humanity can go a long way. Oh yeah, so much. Absolutely. And that's also, I mean, I think that was one thing about having cancer was that it restored my faith in just strangers because you would walk into an infusion center and the nurses and the techs taking care of you in that place were pretty remarkable and pretty amazing and would make you feel secure and protected and supported. Yeah. Before we move on to that, I want to uh, point out folks have called me before since I've had cancer and they say, you know, my friend was diagnosed with cancer. You know, what do I say to her? I don't know what to say. And I said, you know, sometimes that's a great place to start. Like, Alexandra, I heard you had cancer, and, like, I don't know what to say to you, but I want you to know that I care. Right. And you know what I mean? It's just, like, that simple. Like, because when you get, like, you don't have to know. You can actually not know and be okay with that, you know, because it's hard. And but just that, reaching out like that makes such a difference. I agree. I mean, I think you can even say, you know, I got, I had some people that were texting me saying, my son, who's friends with my son, said you have cancer. Is this true? <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, it's true. So, but yeah, it's okay to be human. It's okay to just, you know, yeah. not know what to say. But just to say something means something to that person. It, it makes a great deal of difference, for sure. Yeah. And here's one thing, yeah, here's one thing I will say too, is that somebody said to me, you know, people say when you have cancer, they say to you often, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. 
And one person said to me, that is the worst thing that anybody can say to you because then it puts the onus back on you that you have to think of something for them to do for you. And so, yes, if somebody has cancer and you're looking for something to do for them, don't ask them. Just do something. Um, you know, if they can't yes. eat meal, like, you know, I told people I did not want like casserole upon casserole. I hate casseroles. So I did not want <laughs> food like that coming to my house. Um, some people would say, can I make you dinner? And I would say no. But then they might find some other way to do something for me. Um, being immunocompromised, I didn't really want to eat just random food either because I just needed to make sure that everything was, you know, mm -hmm. clean, yeah. cooked well. Uh, but so that's, yeah, don't ask somebody, what can I do for you? Just do something for them. Yeah. Or say, may I cook you dinner? And then you said no. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. Alexandra, I'm going to the grocery store. What I'm going I, to get you this, so tell me yeah, which or, kind or, you want. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Or just, you know, um, I have tomorrow off. Do you need a ride anywhere to any appointments? Right. Because it can be hard for folks to ask. Like when I first got diagnosed, I would not ask anyone for anything. I'm the guy who gets home from the grocery store. I'm at, I climb out of the car with 14 bags and I'm fumbling for the keys. And the neighbor walks by and says, you need a hand. And I say no. Right. I'm with now, you too. Yep. That's now I say no and then I pause and I say yes, please. Right. <laughs> I get help. But having cancer was what had me realize, well, when I had cancer, I realized my family and I, we cannot, you know, my wife and two kids, you know, we can't do all this on our own. I mean, we could, but it was like I wasn't available. And, you know, we had a, a baby and a young child, and it was really hard, and my uh, closest family's 45 minutes away. And so I asked for help, and the first time I did, it was like a huge victory, because I don't ask people for help. Yeah, I don't really and, ask people for help either, so. <laughs> yeah, so when they say, can I go do this for you? It's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, I'm with you there. And uh, the, like you said, the techs and the nurses, like, that relationship's pretty phenomenal, yeah? Yeah, it truly is. Um, I would actually, and I would usually get the same nurse, and if I didn't get her, I would kind of be a little miffed that I wasn't getting her. But um, yeah, and the nurse navigators, and there were lots of people who were just really special and, like I said, kind of renewed my faith in humanity and that you know people don't have to know you to be kind and nice. So is that what it was that you, people that were strangers to you were going out of their way and being good to you and kind to you? Yeah. And I do think there is, you know, people who work in infusion centers and cancer nurses and they're a special breed. They are a special breed to go into work every day to care for people who are getting treatment so they can stay alive. Right. I mean, that's your job. That's your every day. It's, it's phenomenal. And... I found most of them to be wonderful people, really special people. Yeah, they were great. We'll go back to the, your process of the treatment, but it's on my mind. I'm curious, what was it like for you when treatment ended and you went home and you know you stopped the infusions and seeing the nurses and everything? Um, so actually, it was it was only a year ago 
that I stopped. It was one year ago, like last Saturday, that I had stopped infusions. Mm. And so, you know, it, there is something a little um, unremarkable about just walking out of there the last time and not going back. And yes. it's not like you need, <laughs> you know, you're not expecting confetti to be thrown or anything like that. But you're like, wait a minute, this should feel a little bit more like a victory lap out of here. Um, and it doesn't. You just kind of walk out and you just kind of say, bye-bye. So it was, there was like a tiny bit of letdown after a year. But, you know, then you're kind of just say to yourself, I should just relish in the fact that I am walking out of here and I'm not coming back anytime soon, hopefully. Yeah, unremarkable is a great way to put it. I also felt like, you know, where's the crowd? Where's the people cheering me? Like, I don't think I felt that exact, but like that, that's what, it's what the thinking resembled, you know? Like, I, I just went through this treatment. It was phenomenal and difficult. And, uh, you know, when the chemo was over, they had me ring the bell. Okay. But it just felt like crickets. Right. And And interestingly, you know, Going through all of that had me discover strengths I didn't know I had, and it had me discover parts of myself I didn't know that existed, and I felt so much stronger, and I felt so much power within, and when I left, and it was just like you said, so unremarkable, I was just like, huh, like, what do I do with this? Like, I just, I feel like a superhero who has nobody to save. Like I just got trained in my superhero training and now what do I do? Right. And because I went ultimately 18 times to the infusion center, in the end, I was going by myself because I was like, I'm not wasting anybody else's time. Also, there are too many good programs on Netflix and things like that, so I want to watch that instead of talk to you. <laughs> uh, so it was only in the beginning when people came with me to have infusions and then I just did it all by myself. My my second time, I had an hour, I think a 45 minute to an hour drive to my infusions, my first diagnosis. But my second, I don't know if I told you I was, have we, did we chat about this at all? No. So I was diagnosed with stage two rectal cancer when I was a week, a couple weeks before I was turned 37. And then after that was uh, treated and gone away, I had a recurrence in on September 1st of 2011, it was a stage four metastasis to my liver. Um, my doc came in and said, oh, I've got good news. And I'm like, I don't have cancer. He said, no, you, it, you do. He said, but you had the good kind of metastasis. It went through the portal veins from the large intestine to the liver, not through your lymph nodes. And you don't want it in lymph nodes. I'm like, okay, yay. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's all relative. And so the first time, you know, I drove 45 minutes to an hour to my appointments and I got rides because the stuff was just laying me out. But then my second diagnosis, I had an oncologist and surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. And I would go down there once every five weeks for a, uh, a secondary form of chemotherapy that I received through a pump in my abdomen that went directly into the hepatic artery of the liver. But the regular biweekly systemic chemotherapies, you know, I drove 10 minutes to the hospital. And so after a while, I was kind of like, okay, I can do this, you know. And then uh, 
I, but I do remember at one point I told the nurse, I'm like, I'm feeling more nauseous when I come in. I'm not sure if I should get someone to drive. She's like, wait, you get more nauseous on your way here? Because on Wednesday, they'd, they'd, they'd give me the <laughs> yeah. chemo and they'd send me home with like a fanny pack of chemotherapy and I'd come back on Friday when it, was, when it ran out and they would uh, disconnect me. And she said, and she was great. She said, if you're having an increase in nausea right before you come back here, she's like, that sounds like anxiety to me. And so they wrote me a script for like, you know, a tiny dose of Ativan, lorazepam. Right, lorazepam, yeah. yeah. That was standard, yeah. <laughs> and it made the nausea go away. And then I was able to just go back and forth to my appointments. You know, it wasn't a high enough dose that it was like, you know, affecting my, uh, you know, ability to navigate traffic in my vehicle. It, all, all it did was just kind of undid the uh, anxiety and the nausea and brought me back down to zero. And... uh Man, what a difference that made. I haven't thought about that in quite a long time. Yeah, I do remember going, all the pre-meds for chemo were, I couldn't sleep with all those pre-meds. And so that was tough too, that you would go to chemo and you were exhausted just because I hadn't slept all night because I'd been wired. You'd the take steroids. them the day before? Yeah. Oh, okay, I would get mine right before the infusion i would get a an infusion of you know steroids and pre-meds anti-nausea meds and then immediately get the chemo no i and, had to uh, take some pre-meds like the day before uh, and, and, and so go, go in tired the next day with because you didn't sleep well yeah so but whatever i mean you figure it out i do um i was i read an article about a study about people freezing their toes and fingers after chemo to help prevent neuropathy. And so I would go to chemo with frozen peas and ice blocks. And after the first, I can't remember if it was Taxotere or Carbo, that was the one you were supposed to do afterwards. But after I had that infusion, I would sit there with um, peas and frozen ice blocks on my toes and fingers to try to prevent neuropathy. <laughs> Wowie. So I was a little bit weird in the infusion center with frozen <laughs> vegetables on my feet. Frozen but, vegetables. Yeah. And what, what vegetables did you find were best at a... Uh, the peas your... work well, yeah, because <laughs> they just mold easily. So, oh I mean, you goodness. read things and you try things and... Yeah. You know, I didn't... People are cold capping now. Uh, pretty regularly to prevent losing their hair. Nobody was doing that at the infusion center where I was. I looked into it. I would have had to do it on my own, and it was just too much to handle, I think. But there are I plenty of infusion centers now doing it. I haven't heard of it. What oh, is it? The cold, the cold capping, where basically you freeze your head and the hair follicles so you don't lose your hair. Oh, my. Yeah. So you're just using like a, a, a cap that has uh, like in, sits in the freezer like with gel in it and then you put it on your head kind of thing? It's actually hooked up so it continually blows cold air into your head. Just during treatment? So, yes. Wow. It's ex it can be expensive. Insurance doesn't cover it. If infusion centers sometimes have it there so it's easy to use but if you have to do it on your own i think it requires traveling with dry ice and lots mm. of different things and so it's very cumbersome thank heavens that all these things work 
Right. Because <laughs> there's moments when you're doing these things and you're like, this is absurd. What is going on? <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting in the hospital getting chemo with frozen peas on my feet. <laughs> right. It's an image. Yeah. <laughs> and the neuropathy, see, I started getting neuropathy the first time I was diagnosed and treated. And as soon as I got the neuropathy, the doc pulled way back on the meds. And then the okay. second time I was diagnosed and gone to Memorial Sloan Kettering, where my, my doc, Dr. Nancy Kemeny, she's phenomenal. She only sees people who've had colorectal cancer metastasized to the liver. So she won't see colorectal patients. She won't see liver patients. It's only that specific refined diagnosis. And when I got neuropathy from her treatment, you know, she did more, you know, uh, fine-tuning adjustments to the treatment. And the result was, you know, with my feet, I'm so used to it now, I don't even know if I still have it. But when it first started, it would feel like I was walking on cotton balls that were over, you know, little small round rocks. And my hands were the slightest bit numb in certain areas. Uh, then I recently found out only, you know, maybe six months ago, that some people get like burning pain in their feet and hands that never goes away. Right, and they have and, to wear sleeves and... Oh, yeah. I didn't know. This one guy, he takes a medication to make the pain go away, but it gives him tinnitus. Yeah. And he's choosing his ears ringing over having his hands and feet burning. And like, again, like, I'm grateful... Which is worse. They, yeah. Grateful they find techniques that can make a difference, but you don't realize, like, you know... The treatment that we have that works from, you know, a significant number of people, you know, the side effects and the uh, end results can be pretty phenomenal. So it's, uh, it's like it's so wonderful when you said in the beginning that, uh, you know, the um, triple positive is now less upsetting, I guess, to get diagnosed with because they actually have a better treatment for it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so there is progress. We are finding new ways to treat, but man, it's uh, it's pretty tough. It's pretty brutal sometimes. What, it, we, yeah. what happens to us? It is brutal. One thing, uh, I had to take Claritin before I had chemo too, and I think that was more related to the new Lasta, which was the shot that I got the day after chemo to kind of boost my immune system. But there were, were interesting things that you could take the Claritin in order to prevent bone pain that would be associated with Nulasta. Oh, um, I didn't have that, or they weren't aware of it when I was taking Nulasta, and that stuff, that was worse than chemo. Yeah, bone pain is, I had it once, kind of like in my pelvis, I remember feeling it, and it was like, yeah. I guess this is what this is. What this is. Um, and so then after that, they gave you the Claritin? Well, that was part of the treatment, yeah, the, I would take the Claritin. Um, so, they, I mean, they try to find different ways in order to help you um, get through it. <laughs> yeah, they gave me, uh, what's it? Um, uh, they gave me a, an opiate. I'm trying to start with a P. Uh, I can't remember it, but it just doped me up and the knocked Percocet? me out. The Percocet? Is that what you mean? Percocet, yes. Yeah. They gave me Percocet. And I was so doped up from it. 
I didn't even think about taking less of it. I was just like, get this stuff away from me because my wife and I had split up before my second diagnosis. So she would bring our son to my home and on Saturday, and Saturday was the day that the uh, new last day would really start to hurt and, and, and kick in. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't be on Percocet and taking care of my kid. Right. <laughs> just be checked out. You know, he would play and do his thing while I was aching and just maybe watch a movie. But, you know, you have to raise your kids. Being doped up does not, uh, does not help us at all. No. I mean, I was given... So I ended up having a bilateral mastectomy, too, and they gave me pain meds for after that, and I never even filled the script because I was just... Aleve and Advil were fine. <laughs> they worked. Good, good, good. I wasn't so lucky, but I actually jumped to Tylenol sooner than my doc would have liked because when I told her how much I was taking, she's like, you just had liver surgery. Like, you cannot take that much Tylenol. Like, right, when and when says, you have liver, you can't take Advil, right? Oh, I don't even know. I, maybe. I don't remember. But what I do remember is learning that the number of you know doses you can take in a 24-hour period now that, that always meant nothing to me when I was young. I, mean, I don't know what that even means. Why? And then I find out from my oncologist, because this stuff can do damage to your body, do more harm than good. Right. And it's, it's phenomenal. But I was going to ask you uh, about the surgery. So what? How, how did the process go? Did you have any pre-surgery chemo or do they do it after? How did it all work? So all um, I had the TCHP combo cocktail chemo before surgery and then I had three weeks off to try to get strong for surgery and I had a bilateral mastectomy. They told me that really I was a good candidate for a lumpectomy followed by radiation but I decided mm -hmm. that if I and I discussed this with the physicians that if I had the mastectomy then I wouldn't have to have radiation and I just, I didn't want radiation. I didn't need, yeah. I, I didn't need chemo, surgery, and radiation. I was fine with just having chemo and surgery. That was good. And radiation would have taken many, many more weeks. Um, I explored it. I explored proton therapy. So I did my due diligence. And then I just said, I really want to have this mastectomy. I want to do it. And when I told the nurse practitioner, she's like, doesn't it feel good to make your own decision? And mm. I was like, yep, it really does feel good to make my own decision and to feel empowered by what I want to do when I'm doing it. And, you know, ultimately the doctors, the surgeons are there to help you and navigate, but you get to make some of your own decisions. Yeah, and for me, there was two sides to that. You know, from one perspective, that scared me. Because I didn't want to make my own decisions. This was early on in the diagnosis. I'm like, I don't want to make any decision. What if I make the wrong one? You know? And right. then eventually where I got to is like, there is ultimately no, quote, wrong decision. You will simply go with what makes the most sense. Because when I realized, like, I could even make the right decision and the treatment still might not work. And I really got all there is to do is just to go forward. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's the, that really is every day. That's the only thing you can really determine is you just need to keep going forward. Yeah. 
my, my navigating a cancer diagnosis felt like a maze. And yeah. then, and then when I realized just to go forward, the maze suddenly transformed. So navigating cancer went from feeling like I was in a maze and I realized all there is is to go forward. Then it suddenly turned it into a labyrinth. There's only one way in. There's only one way out. Um, there is no confusion. It's just go forward. And when I got diagnosed, that same friend, Mary, she called me and said, Bert, you get to say how your treatment goes. It's one of the most important things anyone ever said to me. She said, your doctors have their, their training, their experience, and all their wisdom, and they get to recommend to you what they believe the best treatment path is and what options you may have. And then you get multiple opinions, and then you choose which direction you want to go. And she just kept saying over and over, you get to say how your treatment goes. Your insurance pays them, but that's because you give them permission to pay them. Like you, you're the boss. And uh, it made such a difference to have that, you know, awareness brought to me that they are not in charge because culturally, you know, we so frequently, or may I say culturally, it's so common for people to address doctors like they're in charge. Mm-hmm. And when I've spoken to doctors about it, you know, the doctors that I really like, they appreciate when the patient realizes that the patient is in charge and the doctor's a partner. I mean, I, I've known some doctors who seem to like the idea of being in charge, but the good ones, the ones that I like, you know, they're clear, like, wonderful. Yes, I want you to make your, I don't, they're like, I don't want to make the decision for you. This is your life. You want to make your decision. Right. But then, you know, there are tumor boards and the tumor boards say you should do this and that. So it's, I mean, I think sometimes it's hard to be a patient and say, this is what I want to do. But if that's what you want to do, then you need to find your voice and speak up. Yes, because there are times we just need to go the direction we go. Right. And and, and there are hospitals, for instance, that, you know, smaller hospitals are Hospitals that aren't primarily cancer or aren't just cancer hospitals, you know, they follow the standard of care. But right. then you can go to a cancer hospital. They're like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to do that with you. We want to do this, this, and this because you know, they're on the cutting edge and they have uh, different approaches. I mean, just going to Memorial Sloan Kettering, it's one thing that popped out in my mind uh, when I went there for the second opinion for the metastasis to the liver. I saw a surgeon by the name of Dr. D'Angelica and he was telling me what the process was going to be like. And at one point when he didn't say it, I said, well, I have the drain, you know, coming out of my torso. And I don't remember what that thing's called, but he said, no, he said, we don't do that. He said, we've found surgical techniques that keep us from having to put those in patients. And I was like, really? They go, oh, yeah, and it started clicking in my mind. Like, yeah, he does this liver surgery, like, how many times a week? So it's really wonderful to be able to get all the different recommendations and uh, you know, treatment recommendations from the different doctors and then be able to make your decision. And, yes, it can be scary to make a decision, but it can also be quite empowering. Really can. And so you chose a, a bilateral mastectomy. Can you explain what that is? Uh, so basically, the doctors go in and remove all breast tissue. Okay. 
And what they did for me was they put in what are called expanders. And so the point was that I was going to have reconstructive surgery. Uh, typically, it doesn't happen simultaneously because they want to make sure that your skin heals properly and that there is room for an implant. So they put almost like a, a bar in there to keep the skin like the natural shape of a breast and so okay. to make sure it heals well. And then they put in, there's like a, like a bag in there, and then they put in um, cc's of liquid to expand the bag to make the skin stretch if that's what's needed. That doesn't hurt at all because you basically, all the nerves are cut in your chest. Mm. So I, <laughs> I have no feeling in my chest anymore. Um, all those nerves uh. are gone. So, uh, yeah. So like every now and then I feel like I have a phantom itch too and I'm like scratching and it just won't go away. Uh, um, but yeah, and then I think it was maybe three, September. Yeah, it was three months later, four months later that I had implants put in. Okay. And how's that going? Oh, it's fine. I mean, it takes yeah. a little bit of time to get used to sleeping. If you sleep on your chest it's, or your stomach, it's... Not necessarily as comfortable, but it's all good. You know, quarantine has been going very nicely because you don't have to wear a bra when you have implants. <laughs> I don't go too many places, so I don't <laughs> have to wear that. Uh, uh, COVID-19, we're all dressing a little more comfortably. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that was like one of the first things. I saw multiple plastic surgeons, and you know, the first one was like, you will never have to wear a bra again. That's something that's a good thing about implants. Ah, Wow, yeah. that's pretty Who cool. knew, right, yeah. But so, but it still affects sleeping, though, Like, because there's a foreign object in your body, and it's just... Yeah, but, I mean, you get, you get more and more used to it. Okay. So, and then I guess the average shelf life of an implant is about 10 years. So, you know, down the road, I will have to have another surgery. But silver lining, I will be, you know, hopefully... 99 years old with this perky set of breasts. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Wonderful. Uh, you know, I have a, a colostomy from the first uh, diagnosis. They had to remove my rectum and the anus, you know, everything all the way down from the rectum. And uh, I have the colostomy, so I wear a pouch. And it was a long time. I mean, yes, there was sleeping certain ways because of the surgery because I was cut from the sternum, you know, all the way down to my pelvis. And then they actually turned me over and cut me more on the other side. I was pretty, pretty opened up. Uh, but once I was beyond the pain, it still felt odd to lay on the pouch. There's just this, because how it works is, you know, the large intestine is, you know, cut off, uh, is cut and, you know, the remainder of it is removed. And then they cut a hole in the skin, in the abdomen, and push the intestine through the abdominal wall, through the muscles. You know, they're essentially creating a permanent hernia. And then they kind of fold it over like if you, uh, you know, pull up a pair of socks and then fold it down or, you know, put your pants on and then fold the cuff up. It's kind of like mm -hmm. that. And they stitch it to the skin. And then over the over that, it's called the stoma. There is a wax ring with a bandage as well that fits over that with a hole in the middle. And there's like a piece of, uh, 
it's kind of like a Tupperware, but it's much thinner. It's a little Tupperware snap, and then the pouch attached to that with it on the Tupperware snap, and then the pouch hangs off of that. So you can change your pouches, but leave the the wafer on the abdomen. And I went into all that detail to explain, like you know, having that against my abdomen, and I'm laying down. It just felt weird to lay on it you know it's like there's something under me when i'm laying down i mean when i'm in bed like i am like the princess and the bee if my sheet is unfolded if my sheet my 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 fitted sheet if that's folded in half like under me it'll wake me up like i I cannot have such things (laughs) so to have this object under me when i'm laying down it took a long time to get used to it yeah it does take time to get used to things it really does it really does and so you get phantom itches and is it would you it's a phantom itch because since you don't have sensation right i don't have sensation yeah so every now it just feels weird yeah every once in a while i feel like i'm about to pass gas you know i'll go adjust my the way i'm sitting and then i realize oh that was phantom gas (laughs) like i'm not passing gas that's never at least not through that part of my body it's funny (laughs) it's pretty funny because it's like it's because the body, you know, the, the, the muscle memory is still there. You know, we, we adjust yeah. our bodies as needed. And it's like, no, that's, that you're definitely not going to pass gas, sir. That's 100% impossible. <laughs> uh, so how long ago was the uh, bilateral mastectomy? Almost two years now. Two years, okay. And then you had the, the Herceptin. Yeah, for the yeah. year that followed? Uh, I had that. So actually the, the mastectomy was, it would be two years in September. So, you know, the time is amongst all this COVID, you forget what month you're in, right? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I forget what day I'm in. Yeah. So if if it wasn't for these podcasts, I'd have no idea what day it was. So I guess it really was 18 months ago. All right. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of... It wasn't that long ago, but it was that long ago. And, yeah. you know, sometimes you just choose to not remember every detail and keep moving forward. Yeah. And so I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with me and everyone who's listening so they can hear what it's like. And, you know, because each one of us has our unique experience and, you know, what stands out to us and what we noticed and what I've noticed for myself doing these podcasts is it's bringing up all kinds of things. There's times when this conversation is over and I'll feel really emotional or I'll feel charged or I'll feel tired because there's things I haven't thought about in years. And like when you mentioned the port and and the the foreign object in your your chest, like I felt it. I was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was so weird to move around with that in my body. So I really appreciate your time and your generosity and being willing to Oh, no, I'm always willing to talk about it. It's just, and, you know, if somebody has a new diagnosis and a friend says, will you talk to this person? I'm always happy to talk to somebody. um, Because people were kind to talk to me when I was first diagnosed. So it's this kind of circle of life. I feel like you pay it forward and to the next person. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, I mean, cancer is, you know, it was part of my life, but it's not who I am. Uh, it does not define me. It did not change my life too dramatically. Uh, in the end, I mean, I didn't, 
I don't have any like real inspirational things to say. I didn't find God. I didn't, you know, I just like things just kept going forward. And that's what it had to do every day. Like I just had to get up and I had to keep going. And, you know, it's no different now. I have to get up every day and keep going. And it's just part of what makes me me. For me, hearing you say that just speaks volumes about who you are. For myself, getting diagnosed had me wake up and realize that I'd been pretending and not willing to be the person I really wanted to be in the world. And I was faking it and scared to be myself, you know? And for I've talked to folks who have had similar experiences, and for them it was like this huge wake-up call. And it really speaks to what I was wondering about with them. And I love it. You're like, no, it wasn't a huge transformation. It was just like it, it, it got in the way. It had to be dealt with. And I'm back to living my life. I, I mean, love it that. It sounds a little trite when you say it like that, but it really like, you know, I, I think people sometimes want you to say cancer did this to me. It made me do this. It made me feel this way. And, you know, I said before, I mean, it made me feel like I need to reach out to people more often. And, hmm. you know, I need to send notes of encouragement to people and say things to people. But that was like the real takeaway is that, you know, we need to find ways to connect as humans. Yeah. And yeah, for me to like encapsulate it in this little thing, can, can kind of minimize it. But I mean, it's, it's coming from me, someone who's been through it, you know, like I, I really get like you went through this uh, incredibly difficult experience. And I definitely don't want to make it sound like I was stepping over that. Like it, it's phenomenal what we have to, what we have to go through to get here. And so now, what are the uh, post-treatment uh, procedures? Are you getting scans? Are you getting blood work? What What do they do to keep an eye on it? I basically get felt up every six months. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. There's blood work to be done, and I think there's some scans that have to happen eventually. But it's nothing too tremendous. There's nothing like, I don't live in fear that I'm going to have another episode. I mean, it's just sort of, yeah, I, the reoccurrence I don't think is anything that's there. So mm -hmm. I mean, they said that would be rare for something to reoccur. I guess I, you know, the next thing I need to worry about is getting a colonoscopy and <laughs> for, <laughs> Because I guess my chances of getting colon cancer or things like that are a little bit increased. Okay. Yeah, the number, the age has changed from 50 to 45. Bringing it back, which is good. I mean, I'm glad that they're willing. I mean, it's not good because they're saying there's, there's more occurrences in young, people younger than 50. And it's good that they're on top of it and, and encouraging people to get their colonoscopies. Right. Which, which right at this point, you know, I don't know how many colonoscopies are happening, you know, in the, in the, in the COVID era. Oh, right pause. this minute? Yeah, I don't think any are <laughs> happening. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But yeah, so you're going to eventually start having scans? Uh, I think there is some scan I have to have. Yeah. I hate okay. to sound so ignorant, but, I mean, I will just... I go see my oncologist every six months. I see the breast surgeon every six months. And so when they tell me what i got to do, I'll do it. And But I'm not, you know, living from scan to scan, like some people do post-cancer. Mm -hmm. I completely get it as far as, you know, when I was getting annual scans, people would ask me, so when do you start getting them less frequently? And I said, I have no idea. Like, no, I said, you know, I, 
I'm just listening to my doc. Like this is, I trust her. She's fantastic. It's her area of expertise. And when she tells me something needs to change, it will. For instance, you know, I could have gone from quarterly scans to, you know, biannual and just do them every six months. And she said, you know, I just, instead of going from every three months to every six, I'd like you to go every three months to every four. And I want to do that for, you know, she did a couple or two or three of those. And then we went to every six months. And then when she said it was time to do it every year, we'll do it every year. And people have told me, you know, some people have said, you know, you get to a certain number of years and you get no more scans. Other people have told me, oh, no, you get scans for the rest of your life. And I, and like you said, I have no idea. Like, it's kind of neither here nor there. I'm just so grateful. Along for the young. ride. Yeah. If you tell me yeah. I got to get a scan, I'll go get a scan. But I don't need to live thinking, oh, I got to get a scan. You mentioned proton therapy. Yes. What, what is proton therapy? Proton therapy. Yeah, proton therapy. So when you have radiation, that's photon therapy. But Mm. uh, proton therapy uses a different kind of beam. And it's a little bit more precise. And so it hits uh, more closely to the tumor. And so, Mm. for instance, for me, because my tumor was in my left breast, I did not, I wasn't terribly interested in having radiation over my heart. And so with um, proton therapy, it's supposed to be a little bit more precise so that it isn't going to hit other organs in your body. Gotcha. All right. Thank you. And then you just opted for neither. Yes. You're like, just remove the tissue. Let's be done with it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Radiation is nasty stuff if you don't need it. Yeah. Gosh, I don't blame anybody for staying away from it. And I had a mastectomy and I went back to work the day the drains came out. Um, The day after, they were both gone on both sides and I went back to work. And if I had done radiation, I would have, you know, it would have been another six weeks, four weeks. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of like, let's, as I said, get on with it. You are a really strong person i mean you're, it's amazing what your body can handle just listening to you speak because for myself like i'm clear mentally i'm very strong and i know that but physically like my body is really sensitive and the treatment just laid me out you know so many things just kept laying me out and eventually i just had to give myself over to it and say look bert you've toughed your way through everything but you cannot tough your way through this one it's, it ain't gonna happen pal and so i love that your body just was like go do this move forward well and Maybe it probably something. wasn't like that every day but you know as i said you remember what you want to remember so i remember <laughs> getting up and going oh well alexander thank you so much for doing oh, this and being thank on the podcast. you thank you it was fun i really enjoyed it and it's a gift to everyone who's listening to hear what you went through. So thanks. Well, thank you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. 
In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as the Saint Kid. See you all on the next episode and thank you so much for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.